Hello and welcome to this week's Social Action Briefing. Thank you very much for listening. I am Craig Milch. I'm here with Professor Jessica Mitchell. Hello, Jess. Hey, Craig. Um, And right at the top, we're trying to get our followers up. So please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SAB underscore podcast. And uh, we also have a, a newsletter that's going out. Although it's not... It's like a, it's an email. It's not a newsletter. It's not like a Substack. We're not writing crazy stuff. It's just updates about the podcast, but it's happening. Um, so yeah, let's get into our updates. Um, so on the debt ceiling, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, said that the new sort of deadline for the debt ceiling is December 15th. So uh, we got another month until that it comes to a head again although uh as donald trump has been uh, going in on mitch mcconnell or old crow i think is what he's been calling him he keeps saying that uh that you know th- that even this pushback was too much and you know i guess it, the, the economy should have been thrown in crisis already i don't know but yeah we have that to look forward to um some updates on the elections. Um, there was good news out of Monroe County, New York, uh, which includes Rochester. Um, they, the Democrats flipped the county government for the first time in 30 years. Uh, and so I guess the GOP had a lead on uh, election night and then the mail count um, flipped it. And I think it's they've they've only had control of the Democrats only had control of that county government. I think I saw like six years, yeah, since 1936. So um, it's a pretty big deal. Um, and uh, I think mail-in ballot mail-in uh, ballots on Long Island have also uh, flipped some results. Is that right, Jess? Yeah, so there's a couple of races, but before I go to the Long Island ones, I should say that one of the three Democrats that we were awaiting results from in Monroe County is actually a social worker. Legislator Roman has won re-election and is assisting the Democrats in, in taking back control of the Monroe County legislature. Um, in Nassau County, Laura Curran has officially lost to the county executive's race um by about 2000 votes unfortunately of the three legislative democrats that looked to be losing their re-election bids on election night um two of them district 16 and district 18 have flipped that with absentee ballots both both of those legislators were down by less than 250 votes so it was really likely especially in one of the districts that was going to happen uh, the Long Beach City Council is officially controlled completely by the Democrats again. There had been a two, the last two years, a Republican had been sitting on the council, which is odd for that area. Um, and the Glen Cove City Council races, it looks like two of the Democrats have gotten their seats, um, one of them being Marcia Silverman, who is a great 
a great representative for Glen Cove and happy to see her back in Suffolk County. There were five uh, democratically held seats that looked either to have gone to Republicans or, or just were too close to call on election night. Um, three of them have officially been called for the Republican Party. Uh, one of them, District 5, uh, the Democrat will retain her seat. And uh, the last one, Sarah Anker, will, there was, there's still some debate on that, but it looks like Legislator Anker has pulled out in that race. Thus far, there's 120 uncounted absentees at the moment and about 70 affidavit ballots that haven't been counted that look like they are going to push her over the top, but they are, all of the uh, absentees are currently being challenged by Republicans, more than likely in an effort to try to prevent the seat from remaining Democratic. Um, thankfully, judges in New York don't usually let that stuff go through. So hopefully we will have an official count by the end of the week for that race in favor of legislator anchor. Which would that would leave uh, Republicans still with the majority, but it's not a supermajority. Yeah, so it would leave them with the majority, but not a supermajority. So right now, um, you know, in Nassau, it's a little scary. Republicans retained control of the legislature and also now have the county executive seat, which means, you know, no vaccine mandates, no mask mandates, no, you know, they're they're more than likely going to end up passing that legislation again, trying to include police officers as part of the human rights law. There's no one to override that. You know, there's no one to veto that legislation now. Um, Laura Curran had vetoed that legislation this this cycle. Um, Suffolk County, the Republicans will have the majority in the legislature, but they will not have a supermajority. So if Suffolk County Executive Ballone overrides, or I'm sorry, vetoes legislation, the legislature will be unable to override it without Democratic support. When are they expected to pass that in Suffolk? So I can't answer that question anymore. No one can answer that question because Democrats currently have control of the legislature. And once the newly elected legislators are sworn in in January, the Republicans will have control and they will set their own timetable for things of that nature. Um, there are at least one but there might be two uh, former police officers that are Republicans in the Suffolk County legislature. So I'm, I'm like fairly confident it's going to pass at some point. I just don't have a date for it. Um, the Republicans also haven't announced in Nassau when they're going to, when or if they're going to vote on it again. Remember that in Nassau County, that legislation wasn't even introduced by a Republican. It was introduced by a member of the legislature who is unaffiliated with any political party and caucuses with the Democrats. Um, so, yeah, well, I mean, he's not a Democrat. Um, he's not. <laughs> well, well, I'm going to stop it there. Um, but... <laughs> 
I doubt it's very unlikely now that the Republicans have both the majority in the legislature and the county executive seat that they would allow someone caucusing with the Democrats to introduce that. Again, they would do it themselves to get credit for it. Um, but there's nobody to veto it <laughs> in yeah. anymore. And wait, so then what? what's the like seat count in Nassau for the legislature now? I believe that after this election, it will be 12 to six. Oh, wait, 12 to six in, for Republicans? Yeah, hold on one second. Oof. That um, sounds pretty super majority-ish. It's my understanding that they need 13. Okay. Because two thirds is like 12.8. <laughs> um, or something along those lines. I did the math on it the other day. Um. But bearing in mind the Republicans, District 18 was only flipped four years ago. It was the only seat to flip that year and from Republican to Democrat. And the Republicans didn't have a supermajority before. Okay. So that's, uh, wow. Yeah, it's 12, it's 12 to six. I just- So, okay. So, I mean, they have, they have exactly two thirds. Twelve out of eighteen. No, 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 no. It's nineteen in Suffolk. I'm sorry. So it's twelve to seven. 12. See, this is why I can't do math. Like this is oh, okay. things. I'm sorry. Got it's it. twelve to seven. There's nineteen in Nassau. There's eighteen in Suffolk. Oh, okay. So that's why they need thirteen in Nassau because I believe that two thirds of nineteen. When I did the math the other day, it was like twelve point eight not 12. Yeah, no, yeah, it would, it would be more than 12. Um, yeah. Okay, and then- But so it doesn't then, matter because the, the, I mean, honestly, really at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because yeah. then Nassau County Executive is a Republican, so what are they trying to override? Yeah, exactly. So, so they're going to pass this thing and, and, and the new executive is going to sign it and then it's going to go to court. There are no, um, like that nothing has been announced yet. There's no calendar for next year. Um, it was already introduced in Nassau County. The legislature already passed it. It was a pseudo Democrat that introduced it. Um, but it was the Democratic County Executive that overrode it. So, or that, that, that vetoed it, yeah. That vetoed yeah. it. So if they decide to do it again, it's gonna pass and I'm confident that the new county executive will just sign it. Yeah, seems inevitable. It does. And it's really, you know, it's really unfortunate. I mean, she only lost the selection by 2,000 votes. And, you know, it sucks. It sucks that she came in pandering to the right. Um, and it sucks <laughs> that the left does not show up in the same sort of frenzied disassociated from a reality way that republicans do because this is how we end up with police officers as part of the human rights protected class in nassau county i kind of feel like the way you can associate like cowboys with texas you can associate cops with long island 
Yeah. Like we're yeah. we don't have martial law, but we're a police state, sort of. Like we are. And you know what's actually really funny? I was discussing this with um my my friend who I go to school with the other day when we were driving back from school. I drive to Albany once a week. Um, so I either every other week I drive straight to Albany and then every other week I drive to my friend's house in Poughkeepsie and I stay at her house overnight. Um and go to school with her in the morning. So nice to be letting me do this all semester. Um, But, you know, it's really interesting to me because I'm coming from Nassau County. You know, I drive through Queens. I drive through the Bronx, Westchester. um, And I see cops everywhere down here in Nassau, in New York City. Like every time I'm on the road, you know, guaranteed you're going to pass a cop at some point. once I get into Westchester, I never see police officers. And I asked her that the other day. I was like, what do the cop cars up here even look like? I was like, she's in Dutchess County. So I was like, are the cops county cops? Are they town cops? You live right next door to a village. I'm like, does the village have cops? And she was explaining to me the way it works up there. But when I'm taking the Taconic, either all the way to Poughkeepsie or taking the Taconic all the way you know, to upstate New York, the population is much less dense, really, once you leave Westchester, even when you get into Northern Westchester, it's really much less dense. It looks, you know, a little more similar to Suffolk County than anywhere else. And it's just not worth the time and money to have all these police officers sit on a highway where like, you're going to see a car once, like, you know, every couple of hours, especially in the middle of the day when nothing's going on and people aren't going anywhere. Um, And it's crazy to me that the reason why we really fundamentally have police is because we can find people enough to afford police <laughs> yeah it is essentially what I think about it when I think about like highway patrol and stuff like that is like we just have enough people to afford them we don't necessarily have the need for highway patrol yeah to just sit and wait to ticket people yeah population density and the and the revenue that comes from it Yeah, it was wild because I just, I didn't really, I've been doing it all semester. I've been doing it since August, but it didn't really click until like a week or two ago. I was like, I don't ever see cops up here. I don't know what a Westchester or Dutchess County cop looks like or Albany or the counties in between, but I can't even, (laughs) um, um, or like even an Albany cop, you know, in Albany, like I'm, you know, you're like kind of on the highway in and out. And I have no idea what they look like. I don't know what the car looks like. I don't even know what I'd be looking for to like slam on my brakes because I have a speeding problem. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, uh, with your uh, admitted uh, lead foot, you know, it might, you know, you might find out sooner than, than later uh, what they do look like. Who knows? I, well, let's hope not. <laughs> let's hope not. <laughs> um speaking of roads <laughs> uh we can so as far so an update on infrastructure um some interesting things uh former new orleans mayor i believe mitch landreau has been uh appointed to sort of oversee the implementation um and of the infrastructure plan although Pete Buttigieg is also going to have a big role. He is like the largest uh, sort of like, not discretionary, but like sort of like people are going to submit proposals to the Department of Transportation and 
Pete Buttigieg and his crew are going to decide like what gets you know approved, and it's like five times as large as any other uh, secretary transportation secretary is like overseen. So he's like the most by that measure he's the most powerful transportation secretary ever. Um, so that's fun, and uh, also this week the first of what will probably be many um, Republican lawmakers has uh, sort of boasted and bragged and taken credit for uh, infrastructure that he voted against. So this is uh, Gary Palmer of, uh, of Alabama. Um, he put out a release or he, a, a release, but accompanied by a tweet saying completion of Birmingham's Northern Beltline has been a a priority of mine since I was elected to Congress and new funding for the project has now passed. And and then it links to the statement, which includes the uh, sentence or the clause uh, that that the bill, quote, includes legislation introduced by Congressman Gary Palmer and Congressman David Trum. Um, And when infrastructure first passed, his tweet said, the Democrats' recklessly expensive infrastructure bill finally passed tonight after weeks of disarray among their caucus. Um, and it, they, it did include the quote, at least the bill includes legislation, which I introduced with uh, Rep. David Trone, that includes funding for the Birmingham Northern Beltline. So, you know, a lot of um, journalists and Democratic politicians we're, you know, dunking on this guy for, you know, this phenomenon of like, you know, going to the ribbon, ribbon cutting ceremony, essentially, of, a, of an infrastructure project in your district and, you know, getting all the being associated with it and getting all the, you know, political benefit after voting for it and not or voting against it. And in the case of this guy, not just voting against it, but like railing against it. Um, so you know, it's, um, it is an interesting case of like hypocrisy, but the more that, the more I thought about it, I was thinking like in the reverse situation, um, I mean, I don't even know. It's hard to think of like a, like a hypothetical where like the Republicans uh, pass something that Democrats hate, but include, I guess like, I guess, well, the obvious example would be a tax cut, right? So you know, say the Republicans pass a huge tax cut for like wealthy people, corporations, but um, like AOC manages to get uh, like something for like taxi drivers in her district in it or something, you know, I mean, I think, I think that the message would probably be similar of like this, like these terrible people passed this terrible thing that I voted against, but at least my thing got in there. So like, I don't know if, if, if this dunking resonates as much as, as it does, like, like, I don't know, this is like my maverick moment, I guess, of like going against the, the echo chamber. Like, it's not that, it's, it's not that like ass showing to me, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like it's it just seems kind of normal, but I mean it is there is going to be a barrage of uh, of people taking credit for 
projects that are financed by a bill that they voted against so i mean that's just like politics 101 at this point i don't it just it's 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 just a backwards version of what they did you know 11 years ago with the affordable care act like the affordable care act was not what obama wanted it wasn't really what any democrats wanted it's what republicans wanted and then they got what they wanted they wheedled down you know an actual like plan to a private market typical bullshit republican idea voted against it and then campaigned against it it's like you literally got what you wanted <laughs> like yeah. how are you campaigning against your own plan well it's what romney implemented in massachusetts okay but let's be clear about this we can keep complaining about that but romney was like court ordered to do that by the massachusetts supreme court so like yes huh. it is always a good time making fun of romney <laughs> But it was a little bit of a different situation. And because I'm not a Republican who disassociates from reality, I want to say that a lot of that was just like part partisan political pandering too. Like, Well, even in hindsight, though, like that's not the case that Romney would make as for why uh, he was against Obamacare after putting in a similar, you know. No, let's be real. Similar. He was against Obamacare because it was a Democratic bill and he's a Republican and that's the United States. We don't work for the well, better of the people. We work for the better of the political parties. And yeah, and then, but I mean, well, yeah, that's like the real reason. But like even the reason that he gave, he would he would say, oh, well, you know, Massachusetts and the state is different than the whole country. Like he didn't say, oh, a court made me do it. Like, yeah. But yeah. Because it was like, you know, it was the way that he chose to implement a court order. So like, yes, like, I guess we can like rag on him for that. But, you know, honestly, like, I, I like, I don't like to actually say this, but like, I partially agree with him. The federal government should give all of the states money for universal health care and we should implement it on a state by state basis. And you know what? If the state of Missouri and Alabama don't want to do shit with that money to actually help people, then fine. Like, it, let them do whatever they want. I'm sure the people of Alabama will be happy to vote against their own interests and make sure they get a crappy piece of legislation. But like we could actually use the money in New York. You know, we could use the money that we're wasting on the Affordable Care Act open exchange and use that for actual like universal insurance for everybody. Well, isn't that the plan with the New York Health Act? So yeah, but the, it, the part of the problem with the New York Health Act is that it's not the New York Health Act's problem. It's that some, not some, but a lot of the money that we get from the federal government for things like Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act are supposed to be for that. So the entire, not the entire, but a huge chunk of the New York Health Act is contingent on asking permission from the federal government to use that money for something other than what it's actually designated for, which, you know, under a Biden administration would probably go through at a reasonable rate, but like, we don't know who's going to be president in three years. So like, are we going to end up with a president who's like directing the departments responsible for giving out those waivers to deny the waivers? Are we going to have universal health care for three years and then all of a sudden have to go back on it because we can't use that money anymore? Oh, okay. that. In all the discussion of the New York Health Act that I've been witness to, that that hasn't uh, been mentioned. 
you know what? And maybe it's not a real thing. Maybe, you know, we're going to have it and Republicans are all about states' rights and states should be able to do whatever they want to do. And <laughs> no, no, no. No. No, 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 no. <laughs> Republicans rely on their principles. No, 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 no. I know. I know it's like highly <laughs> amusing to be saying this right now. But like, honestly, it's like a legitimate concern of mine. I have to be 100% honest with you. I haven't read the full text of the New York Health Act in a couple of years, and I know that it's changed. I'm clutching my imaginary pearls right now. But that's a concern of mine. It's like Medicare money, I'm sorry, Medicaid, Medicaid money is Medicaid money. Like you have to qualify for Medicaid. And if we are using Medicaid money on universal health care, that isn't technically like a means tested program so like we have to apply for a waiver for that well what what about like the medicaid money goes to people that qualified for medicaid and then like the the exchange subsidies or whatever go to everybody else or something you know look i'm not like an expert on it but the the legislation when i read it a couple of years ago talked about requesting the waivers okay um yeah, that was like a specific discussion in there. So like at the end of the day, could we do something like that? Probably like if we had a Republican elected, you know, president who wasn't going to allow us to continue with the waivers, I'm sure the government would try to, you know, the New York state government would try to finagle their way into continuing to use that money one way or another. But there are like specific administrative things related to it and really the reason why a universal healthcare system is beneficial is because you just get it. There isn't an issue. Like we are all covered by one health insurance plan. We, you know, theoretically don't need, um, you know, like approval for anything. You just sign up for it and that's the end of it. It just, you know, adding these layers of how we're going to pay for things complicates it in a way that brings us back to means testing. <laughs> and I don't know. So, I don't know. I'm just saying, F. Joe Lieberman for killing the public option. Um, Hadn't he ran for vice president? What? He was the vice presidential candidate for Al Gore in 2000. Could you imagine? No, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, that I knew. But what did you say about that? I just, I like, I, and this is a man who, like, ran for oh. vice president. Like, I just, you know. I mean, I'm not like advocating for Bush and Cheney to have won, but like, this is a a Democrat who ran for vice president who like doesn't believe in public option. Yeah, he was uh, uh, the 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 Lincoln uh, Johnson thing is coming to mind. Yeah, where (laughs) where Lincoln uh, chose was Johnson like a Democrat like from the other party. Yeah. I think he was. Yeah. Yeah. He was a Democrat. When he was yeah, president yeah. after Lincoln was assassinated, like he was a Democratic president. One, yeah. And then killed Reconstruction, right? It was basically his doing. So he really defunded Reconstruction and like to, he he attempted and and some of it was overridden by Congress. He attempted to like veto legislation that would have de- you know, that would have paid for the Freedmen's Bureau, which which was really the first social service program administered by the federal government and paid for by the federal government. And he 
tried to defund it, um, but he didn't actually end Reconstruction because Republicans still had control of Congress at the time. Um, it was Rutherford B. Hayes and his election in um, 1876 that ended Reconstruction when he pulled federal troops out of the South as like a compromise deal to get elected president, even though. Oh, yes. Whatever. Um, yeah, he, even though he probably didn't really win that election and he did not win the popular vote, but he probably didn't even win the electoral vote. Um, but it was it was he was the one who really ended Reconstruction and he was a Republican, but he was a Republican just so hell bent on serving as president that he was willing to compromise his own values and his own like political stances in order to get into the White House for four years to do very little except completely screw over black people in the South. Yeah, I somehow used that example uh, in in that in the debate in our policy class uh, a year ago to try because I was forced to argue against mail-in voting. I for, and then it was like, well, if we have mail-in voting, we're going to have 1876 all over again, and that mm-hmm. ended Reconstruction. We don't want that, do we? I don't know how I got there, but I feel like it was some somehow logical. I really do. I greatly enjoyed when we don't have debates in policy anymore, but I greatly enjoyed randomly assigning people to debates before I even knew them because I would do it the first day of class because I always, always, always had a couple of students who ended up on the wrong side of whatever they actually believed in. And honestly, because you have to do so much work to argue something you don't believe in and you you have to find ways to creatively get to these places that it just it makes for better debates I know the students don't like it but it was just always a ton of fun like realizing later like how wrong some of the placements were <laughs> and it makes for better debates when I have students that are all on the side that they agree with they're just lazy about it because they already agree with it so they don't have to be as creative yeah I think the way I got on the side of being against mail-in voting was just being scared of the bad faith arguments about it. So like, let's just avoid. So it's really very democratic of me um, to just be scared of bad faith arguments and just disengage from the conflict. So really, so I didn't really have to go too far for my true self, I guess. I don't know. Um, but no, I'm not. I'm not an establishment Democrat, so never mind that. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was just trying to dig at them. Um, so our next sort of update um, is regarding critical race theory. So mm-hmm. um, this may or may not be surprising, but after the uh, election earlier this month, the coverage of critical race theory dropped uh substantially on fox news and other outlets but you know fox news was doing it the most so the drop was most pronounced very reminiscent of the caravan in previous elections just manufacturing uh like you know fear and all this nonsense to scare people into voting and then after they just kind of ditch it until the next election um and uh, Sarah Smith, who was on uh, a couple weeks ago, sent me something out of North Dakota. I don't. We don't know if this was passed or not. I haven't done my Googles, but um, so this is for the Legislative Assembly of North Dakota. 
And if it's passed, uh, so saying that each school district and public school shall ensure instruction of its curriculum is factual and objective. Um, a school district or public school may not include instruction related to critical race theory in any portion of the district's uh, required curriculum. Um, for the purpose of this section, critical race theory means the theory that racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but that racism is systemically embedded in American society and the American legal system to facilitate racial inequality. And uh, this was like a, a picture of a Facebook post and this person, Vincent Bertuccio, whose post it was said, ironically, passage of this is a perfect example of systemic racism. And that's, that, that, is, that is correct. So I don't know if this is from, uh, like I said, I don't know if this is recent or you know before the election or whatever, but it is not being dropped as an issue, you know, throughout the party. So, you know, Fox News decides to stop, you know, pushing it, um, you know, propaganda wise, they move on to the next outrage. But, you know, there's obviously, you know, it still reverberates and something that the House Judiciary uh, Committee, uh, well, the, the House Judiciary, like the GOP members of it or whatever, it's the Judiciary GOP Twitter handle. They they have this dramatic post, um, like breaking whistleblower discloses explosive documents showing FBI using counterterrorism tools to investigate parents. They have this letter signed by Jim Jordan who covered up uh, high school wrestler sexual abuse, but is still a congressman. Uh, and then, then, then there's the, the next thread to tweet is, from the whistleblower and it's like this letter from the fbi to schools um and you know it's it and then uh nyc southpaw on twitter who's like lawyer journalist uh said this appears to be a request from law enforcement to report credible threats of violence directed at school administrators over which the federal government may have jurisdiction i mean that's so that's it's just a regular, reasonable document, considering, you know, that there has been threats against, you know, uh, educators, and it doesn't mention parents anywhere. So, that's just some uh, Republican baddiness off the heels of this manufactured issue, um, and it 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 rolls nicely into our our next topic of general. Republican insanity, um, starting with the leader of the party, uh, who, who I guess was interviewed by the My Pillow guy, mm-hmm. um, and he said, the guy "Who actually just sells the My Pillow? Like he's the CEO of the My Pillow Corporation, right?" Yep, Mike Lindell. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and yeah, so he went on there, and he, he's you know. Um, the same big lie stuff. We know what happened. They basically, this is a quote, we know what happened. They basically used COVID or the China virus, COVID-19 or the China virus to rig the election. And it's a shame. So that's still going on. And then uh, Brad Raffensperger was uh, interviewed and he would not, I think it was by Mehdi Hassan, and he wouldn't rule out voting for Trump again, even though uh, Trump incited 
violence against his family because he was the Georgia Secretary of State and you know Republicans lost in Georgia and Trump lost Georgia. And amazingly, he he would still he still did not rule out uh, voting for Trump again. So that's nuts. Um, what's next on our list? Oh yes, Madison Cawthorn, um, who is a young member of Congress. Um, how he's he's like really young. How old is he? Yeah, he's twenty six years old. Um, he's the guy that you may recognize. He's the guy that's in the wheelchair. May have seen him before, um, and he has. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna play the audio because it is wild and just should be heard. And I will play it close to my face, just so you can hear it. And then if it's mm-hmm. uh, if I need to, I'll splice it in in editing. But um, yeah, here. It is. Yeah, I think I heard most of it. <laughs> <laughs> Just so matter of fact, if anyone tells you that the election wasn't stolen, they're lying to you. And that, and it gets all these cheers and like this. And uh, so this guy, Joe Walsh, um, I get he's, I suppose, a never Trump Republican at this point. I feel like he might have started out uh, supporting Trump and then flipped. I don't remember his, uh, his uh, arc, but he's a former congressman. Um, and he said that, you know, talking about Cawthorn, he said, yes, he's ignorant and yes, he's a fraud, but he's exactly where the GOP base is. I hear from the base every day. This is the base talking, which is pretty scary. I mean, it, it really just goes to back to the point that I've been harping on for so long is that Republicans are just so easily disassociating themselves from reality. And, and some of these people I'm related to, I mean, it's frightening what people will do to convince themselves that the place where they were already is the place that they should stay. Um, you know, even, even elected officials who were never Trumpers from the beginning, who just immediately, as soon as he won the primary in 2016, were just like, okay, like this is the party standard bearer now and we need to live with it. Like we don't need to live with it. And this, you know, this is the issue with Democrats is that we are so easily we so easily give up every time we don't like somebody for whatever reason, minor or major. Um, and Republicans just don't care. Like, it's fine. They'll just take whatever it ends up being and run with it. Um, and there are so few people within the Republican party that are willing to stand up for, for what's right or to stand up against, you know, someone is 
out of touch with reality as Trump is. Yeah, I mean, and there are only 13 of them in the House that would even vote for infrastructure. Yeah. How many, uh, how many voted to impeach in the House the second time? Do you remember? I'm looking right now. I think it ended up being like nine and really like it's just- Yeah, 10. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, so there's a, another fun vote today. So uh, Paul Gosar, he, <laughs> he tweeted out a video, an anime video. And I haven't, I, I haven't uh, watched it, but read enough about what it was. It was an anime video. It depicted him killing AOC. Mm. And I think it also depicted him killing Joe Biden. And uh, you know, yesterday there was a vote and you know, they were talking about a vote to censor him, remove him from uh, committees. Although yesterday the talk was that it was just oversight and not his other committee, Reform Natural Resources. Um, and he, so behind closed doors, uh, Gosar told members that the reason for the video was that he put out an anime video to reach a wider audience. Uh, um, and and Kevin McCarthy, the the leader of the Republicans in the House, told members at the conference that Republicans should be united uh, on this, and that Democrats don't punish their own for comments. So, and this this is this around the same time that the that in Wyoming, um, I guess it was like the Republican Party or some committee in Wyoming told Liz Cheney she's not a Republican. You know, uh, Republican members of Congress who voted for infrastructure getting death threats, but uh, but yeah, McCarthy's telling these people, you know, to unite around uh, behind a, a rep that also he has literal ties to white nationalists, and you know, put out that video. Um, so today was the vote on censure, and it passed, and and it was it ended up being to remove him from both of his committees, not just oversight. Uh, and there were two Republicans that uh, voted yes on the censure, and that was Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, meaning that, uh, that a bunch of the Republican members who are receiving death threats of their own did not vote to censure Paul Gosar, who apparently once was a good dentist. Um, that's another thing that I saw. <laughs> and then there were people on Twitter like, yeah, he's my dentist and he wasn't this crazy back then. And someone was like, yeah, like, like, he was, like he was a good dentist. He wasn't like this. And he thinks that there's actually something neurological going on with this guy, which wouldn't be super surprising given the nuttiness that's been, that he's been getting into. Um, and he made that argument in private about, you know, having an anime video to reach a wider audience. But then he also made the argument in public on something called stewpeters.tv. My first reaction is it sounds like stupiders, um, but apparently this guy, Stu Peters, he's been described as a MAGA shock jock, and he's also a leading COVID conspiracy theorist. So yeah, there's like a video that's like, why aren't, uh, why aren't the Republicans backing you, 
strongly enough for that to go as far. And then I turned off the video. Um, and then to, and then AOC, so today she made a, she spoke, you know, during the vote in the House um, about how dangerous, you know, this is and, and how, you know, what, what uh, you know, the, the work that, that Congress does matters, what they say matters. It's very stirring. Um, yesterday, she, she said that Gosar and other Republicans are essentially using a national platform to legitimize threats of violence on lower levels and on the local levels to intimidate people from participating in our democracy. I believe this is part of a concerted strategy. And that that actually, that might be a, a place where I break from AOC, which isn't that often, but I don't know. I don't know if it's to, if it's like a concerted strategy, if it's Paul Gosar involved. Like, I, I don't know if they're that cunning or capable. It's just like, I think he just saw the video and wanted to rile up his base, but not rather than like give cover for violence, but I don't know. It doesn't really matter. It's, I mean, it's at this point, I'm going to pass the Republican Party to have some kind of like concerted and coordinated effort. Like you look at, I just don't think that they're as stupid as people think that they are. We blow it off because of the ridiculous level that they take it to, but if you look at what's going on with so many other members of Congress and even just the negativity that's geared towards one Congresswoman, you know, um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it is some kind of coordinated attack. Marjorie Taylor Greene is out there all the time with some, you know, whether it's like a negative thing or some underhanded threat towards Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez like that it's it's going on and it's from multiple places like they've picked one democratic congressperson that they can really just consistently attack and it's it's scary because I don't think they're that stupid I think they're doing it on purpose well yeah I mean well they're definitely purposely attacking the people that they're attacking like I mean the entire squad Ilhan Omar gets it pretty bad yes I think the, the vitriol directed at her is, I think, seems more of like violent at times than even uh, that AOC gets. But I mean, yeah, it's it's concerted. I don't know how coordinated. I'd be surprised if it was like super coordinated or like I don't know. I I, I need I need to see more to to believe that they're not stupid. Like you don't have to be smart to like be racist <laughs> and, and like a fear monger like you know i don't know the, the burden of proof i think is high on on especially republicans in the house not being stupid that's just my personal opinion no i get what you're saying but at the same time they are i don't know i just i do like i think they're they're doing this on purpose and i think that republicans in the same way that they have a really good history of like good messaging that they mm. just, I don't know. I think that they are perfectly capable of doing things like this and we don't give them enough credit for how smart they are for being good at this stuff. Yeah, I mean, they're good at manipulating their base yeah and getting them angry 
Um, I, I mean, but like, like, yeah, like intentionally, like having concerted strategy to legitimize threats of violence on other levels. Maybe. I, I'll be honest with you too. I was watching The Handmaid's Tale this weekend, so it could just be clouding my judgment. <laughs> yeah. Just. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know, because, man, I don't know how much like the other violence serves them. I mean, well, le- but legitimizing violence, it does make the insurrection seem less bad. So there's definitely incentives to do that, to whitewash it. Yeah, no, completely agree. But also there is almost an expectation of violence coming from that side at this point. If you, like we were talking about earlier, if you look at, um, if you just look at like the the base in and of itself and how riled up they are, you know, there's so many people who aren't watching Fox News because it isn't conservative enough because it, which is like, yeah obviously, but like, because it isn't conservative enough, because it isn't attacking people, um, you know, Democrats enough that it's literally gotten to the point where that's what the base expects. And I think that the Republican party is playing into that and also hyping it up and making it, they're making their base that way. Yeah, definitely that for sure. Um, and then we have the white knight, Chris Christie, who is going to be our Robert Moses this week. Um, he's come out with a book called Republican Rescue, Saving the Party from Truth Deniers, Conspiracy Theorists, and the Dangerous Policies of Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. This, so he's, and he's been going on this huge media tour every conceivable outlet. He got like an hour long special from CNN called Being Chris Christie. I guess it, they have a series of like being so-and-so and, and the Chris Christie one came out. He's done all these interviews. This is a guy who his approval was 14% when he left office. Um, and he was the first person to uh, like endure, like the first like establishment Republican um, with considerable power to endorse Donald Trump. Um, and he also made one of the worst predictions ever where he was like interviewed before the 2020 election and said with confidence that uh, Donald Trump would accept the results if he lost. Mm. <laughs> um, Donald Trump wouldn't even say that Donald Trump would accept the results if he lost. So I don't know why anybody else is making that claim. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what he was thinking. Um, but now he's now he's trying to have this uh, he's trying to take this angle where like that the party should move on from Trump and that and he's he's saying things like when I ran for re-election in 2013, I got 60% of the vote. When he ran for re-election, he lost to Joe Biden happy to have that comparison stand up because that's the one that really matters so he's trying to like take a posture um you know against trump but i think i think he wouldn't 
I'm pretty sure he, he didn't rule out just voting for Trump again anyway. Um, I'm pretty sure in one of those interviews he said that. And I don't know. It's just it's just absurd to me that that this is happening, that this guy's being taken seriously. Um, and like after like his approval rate was 14% because of that whole Bridgegate thing, right? That was a huge part of it. I mean, he was also just a shitty governor with an incumbency advantage in a place that people didn't really care about in a year after a Democrat got elected president. So like, I'm not really giving too much credit to him for like not losing an election like he should have won. I mean, fantastic. Great for you. Like you also completely screwed up the presidential election because you are a boring old white guy with tired ideas that even the Republican party can't get on board with because they can't identify you from the 14 other people you're sitting on stage with. So like, I'm not giving you a medal for winning an election you were supposed to win. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why he's like this, he's being considered anything but just a ridiculous person like there's yeah like these headlines christie reveals trump's election night moment that made him feel sick well, like that's a big that, headline all that stuff is just clickbait every every single you know time i read a um or read just like a headline at this point i'm really not even paying attention to what it says i'm clicking on the article because the headlines are just bullshit and you know to a certain extent media is failing us like they are not especially the news they're not doing their job like you cannot in good conscience you have two choices when someone as ridiculous as chris christie comes out and writes a book or makes a statement you can either report it and call him on his bullshit or you cannot report it and not give him the attention that he craves so badly. You're reporting it like it's news is a failure of your profession. It's not yeah. news, it's a joke. <laughs> and it, it seemed like Nicole Wallace was the only person to call him on his bullshit. Um, because when she, so he was on her program on MSNBC and she was basically saying like, how can you talk about saving the party from truth deniers and conspiracy theorists and not talk about Fox news. And then, and then, and then he goes on to like feign ignorance at what Tucker Carlson says. He's like, Oh no, I watch, uh, I watch Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity. I don't watch Tucker Carlson. They all lie and they're not look this. Let's just call it what it is. Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity and, and all of them are not, news people they are commentators that is not the news hour they are there to get ratings to keep the advertisers around for fox like that is not a news hour they're not reporting on news they're commenting and you might as well go watch the freaking daily show because it's literally the same thing well the daily show actually says like things that actually happened no, I know, but it's also not a <laughs> like I understand that it's funny and it's really all about like if I find it hysterical and it's really just about like beating up on elected officials and like making a joke out of what's going on in the world. But like at the end of the day, the left understands that it is a funny comedic program that isn't actually intended to report the news in any sort of like fair and unbiased way. Whereas the right will not accept that out of Fox News. It is effectively the same thing. It's just coming from a different political perspective. 
Yeah. I, I get what you're saying, but calling them effectively the same thing is just making my brain like go sideways because well i mean fox it's, it's, but and yeah i mean and, and it's it's like one of the key reasons our society is so whacked like everything that we've been talking about like today um you know and always like all the screwed up things a lot of it ties back to fox news and really none of the ties back to the daily show so that that's what's like no i know but again like this is the but this is like the base that you're going after and the base that fox is going after is completely detached from reality whereas like the base that you know the daily show is going after isn't like understands that it's a comedy hour more than it is anything else and doesn't like live and die by what's said on it and that's (laughs) really the difference it's not it's it yes the presentation is obviously slightly different but like it's the people that are listening and watching that are different because people think fox news is news and it's not (laughs) yeah yeah as as their lawyers argued to get out of uh being sued literally lawyers argued like they're not actually news that no they argue that no reasonable person would believe that uh what tucker carlson says is true (laughs) it's not true but like the fact that he actually says it and then tries to pretend it's ridiculous yeah it's ridiculous this is the world we live in though and this is why news literacy 101 should be a required class at every university yes and so the 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 topic uh of the front page so we're uh we're recording this wednesday night november 17th the the front page of yesterday's news day which this was the first time i picked up a physical paper and i don't know how long because i had to write an op-ed for one of my classes and i wanted to see how Newsday's looks and we had we had to like pick like an outlet to be sending this to and I picked Newsday so I looked at it but the front page was about inflation and I this is something I want I would I've like already wanted to talk about but I felt like how is it you know gonna fit on social action briefing like I'm just like an economics nerd but it's on the front page of the paper so we're gonna talk about it um so people are very riled up and scared about inflation. The Newsday article is like people talking about how prices are high and it's and it's you know bothering them. Although some people like expect it to go down. But for some context, this inflation is uh, coming off of the essentially the most effective anti-recessionary policy in U.S. history. Now this is a quote in a tweet from a. Uh, guy named Alex Williams is a research analyst at Employ America, like a think tank dealing with uh, you know employment and, and, and such. I don't know if he's if it was quoting someone else or it's his quote, but um, you know it's an effect this is like the, the American rescue plan was a very effective piece of legislation. Um, so Joe Weisenthal said you know this is the, the most incredible economic comeback in history. This is the same guy who I think I think we talked about minting the, the trillion dollar coin. Same guy who talked about that. Um, he was saying so 
has the fastest wage gains happening at the low end. So the you know the low wage workers are having their wages go up at the highest rate. Huge household deleveraging, so you know a lot of less household debt. Um, and uh, and you're saying econ Twitter is mostly focused on why you basically why U.S. inflation is a little bit higher than Germany's. Um, so after the Great Recession, it took uh, an entire decade for employment levels to return what they had been in the beginning of 2008. Now, after a year and a half, um, since since the <laughs> so this is a quote from the Washington Post article. Yet, just a year and a half since we put the American economy into a medically induced coma and lost 22 million jobs, 18 million of those jobs have been recovered, and more are being created at a furious pace. So we're seeing um, you know strong job creation, including about 626,000 more jobs over the summer than were originally reported. The Bureau of Labor Statistics put out a revision this week. Um, basically, the numbers are underreported because uh, a lot, like, I don't know, people were busy was essentially the long and short of it. Like hmm. the, the, the people that are hiring a lot, you know, don't have time to like fill out the surveys or whatever it was. So we're seeing strong job creation, rising wages, retail sales surging, and the stock market setting records. Um, and Ron Klain, the White House Chief of Staff, said we're seeing a jobs recovery stronger than any in modern times. Um, the unemployment rate, this is in response to the, the uh, report um, on CNN, uh, Goldman Sachs said the unemployment rate will match a 50-year low by the end of uh, 2022. So we're, we're recovering from the pandemic uh, at, like at an amazing rate, um, like it's like at, like at the same level of like miraculousness as the as the vaccine, essentially. Um, according to the IMF, so the world government world government spent ten point eight trillion dollars, you know, to get out of the pandemic. About half of that uh, coming from outside the U.S. So like half the U.S., half the rest of the country, or the rest of the world. And if it hadn't happened, the uh, economic consequences of the pandemic would likely have been worse than the Great Depression. Um, this is uh, a guy named Matt Klein, who uh, he's a, like an a economic journalist for Bloomberg. He has a, like a newsletter called The Overshoot. Um, who kind of wrote a piece about this so that's so that that's like the context for you know a little bit of high inflation that we're seeing and we know that a lot of it is caused by supply chain bottlenecks so you know goods aren't getting from you know overseas into the country as fast as uh net as as the demand you know is, is wanting them to so, you know, the, the ships, you know, and the containers piled up. Um, but the, the CEO of the Port of Los Angeles said the number of containers sitting on docks has declined by 29%. So, you know, these, these bottlenecks are going to be alleviated and that the inflation that it's causing, um, you know, is going to go away. Like another thing that Goldman Sachs said is that when the supply problems resolve, it should eventually cause supply constrained categories to shift 
from a transitory inflationary boost to a transitory deflationary drag. So, you know, the goods being stuck at the ports is causing inflation. They're all going to, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to get unclogged and there's going to be like a, a yo-yo the other way. So it'll be deflationary and, you know, inflation will come down. So, but people are, you know, people are worried about this and, you know, there's a lot of debate over whether it's legitimate. Um, Dave Roberts, who we mentioned before, he's primarily known as uh, one of the top climate uh, journalists and, and writers. Um, he, his tweet said, I despair of screaming this into the void, but voters are not primarily responding to inflation. They are responding to a massive, highly coordinated propaganda campaign across multiple uh, media designed to freak out, freak them out about inflation. And I tend to agree. I mean, uh, Austin Goolsby, uh, who is an Obama economist, pointed out that like this in inflation is global. Um, so it's not because of, you know, just the you know, American fiscal policy. Um, although, you know, they did, you know, we did contribute about half of the sort of spending, you know, to get out of, uh, to get out of, you know, the pandemic recession. Um, but, you know, and Larry Summers is uh, a, a top economist. He, was, he worked for Obama, you know, the Obama administration, and he's been the one sort of warning against inflation, um, you know, from, you know, from sort of the center left. And he was saying like that the fact that there's still inflation proves that it's not transitory, um, you know, it's not temporary, but, you know, we still need to, to get these like boxes un unloaded from the ports. And even he still supports both, well, he says, you know, infrastructure, the infrastructure bill isn't gonna be inflationary and he still supports the Build Back Better bill. Um, and that's really where this, you know, what the importance of all this is, is like inflation, is going to has already been you know uh, highlighted by Joe Manchin as the reason you know to take a pause and to not you know do things that help families. So that's sort of why like I feel like you know we should all sort of understand what's going on you know with this inflation discourse um, you know because when it comes to social programs, it's the prime like one of the primary arguments against doing things that help people. Of course, it doesn't come into play when we're passing, you know, uh, huge military budgets and it increases beyond what Biden even asked for, which is what just happened. Um, but, you know, this whole inflation uh, discussion, you know, is wielded in that way. And one of the counter arguments to the whole, like, media, um, you know, getting people riled up is so this guy Noah Smith, he was saying um, that he that it's he doubts this is true because this is really getting into the weeds. But basically, that weight that like when inflation goes up, um, people people don't get to bargain for their wages to increase. They don't have like a cost of living adjustment. So the fact that people aren't getting paid more, but there's inflation means like that their real wage 
um, goes down. So like their inflation adjusted wages go down because inflation is going up. Hopefully this is making sense to people. Um, and there is evidence that this is why people didn't like inflation in the 70s when it happened um, you know, with OPEC and, and oil shortages. So, but that that's given as a reason for why it's not a media generated, like more like fear and, and people getting riled up. Um, but I but I think that like just because like inflation hurt people in the seventies, um, you know, for a good reason doesn't mean that that's what's going on right now. I think people have been super afraid of inflation since the seventies because it was bad. Um, but, it, but all these fears haven't borne out. Like there's the, like when AOC um, got, I think it was Powell or it was one, it was either, it was the chair of the fed at the time or the secretary of the treasury at the time, I think it was the fed chair that he, that she got him to admit that even with low, low unemployment, it didn't cause like rampant inflation, like people like, and that, that's why so much spending is like going on right now. And there's like political will to do all this spending is because all this inflation fear hasn't been borne out. And the only, and I, I, I got deep in the weeds deeper than it or than I'm already getting now to look at real wages right now. And what happened was at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of low wage people lost their jobs. So wages, real wages went up because the people with high wages were the ones that were left. And since then, real wages have dropped, but they are, if you, if you like look at the chart of real wages over time and go from like right before the pandemic to now, it's like a continuing upward trend. So all of that is to say, that inflation is not hurting people like it is in the 70s. And all this, like, you know, the child tax credit was passed. Um, you know, so there's like this, like, epic record reduction in, in child poverty. And then all the benefits that we were saying before are, you know, from the American Rescue Plan um, are in effect. And we, we got out of the, you know, the pandemic recession at an amazing rate. Um, so my feeling is that the fear that the this like budding inflation panic is mostly um fear based but the problem is is that it, it doesn't it, if that if people are afraid whether it's based in reality or because they're whipped up it's kind of the same like consequence um especially if that leads to like the fed raising interest rates which is sort of like a catch-all way to just slow down the economy um, if you're worried about like runaway inflation but it, that hurts people because it it, 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 uh, it slows down the economy um, and makes everybody worse off as like a medicine but it's but when, if you do that and it's not necessary then it's obviously bad so that is my long <laughs> long uh, inflation rant um, and, uh, yeah, the, um, we shouldn't be afraid of inflation, especially when it comes to build back better. 
because you know paid family leave uh saving you know the climate um making you know healthcare cheaper for people making uh making pre-k you know universal and just care being you know more affordable um it's not something we should stop just because people are worried about inflation it's not it's not a real fear so it, it just worried me to see it on the front page of newsday so um i wanted to kind of cover it here uh just uh, do you think i made sense from to like people who uh are not economists yeah i mean i think the economy is a hard thing to wrap your head around yes and i think it just it's something that it takes time to learn and clearly i mean i go off on my own rants all the time about stuff that i obviously care about and have known about for a long time but i just encourage people who like didn't understand parts of it to really look into it <laughs> you know to 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 look at at what you know people are actually talking about even if it's just like terms um you know because you have to care like it's gonna it's gonna impact you even just when you said um about like the fed changing you know like the interest rate it's you know these are things that could impact you literally every day your credit cards if you have private student loans if you have private variable interest loans like these are things that people need to to care about yes um and if anyone out there um has more questions about this you can definitely reach out to me at cmilch on twitter but also or you know a lot of you just know me so just ask me um and uh also I'll, I'll make sure that the sab underscore podcast account um like retweets some of the the articles that i was reading because i basically like i saw it um i saw it as the front the front page like the the, the front page story on newsday read that and i'd seen like some tweets and i probably even like favorited some of them and whatever but once i decided to talk about it i really just it was like two hours like and then i ended up going to like the st louis feds website and like making the chart of like real wages myself to like to look at it um but that and that being able to do that was pretty cool and sort of like the reason why um i decided to uh study economics in undergrad was when uh, when looking into something like this i wanted to be able to like figure out who i like believed or like, excited with because like in this instance that dave roberts guy and like noah smith like i agree with both of them often you know and and needed to like see what i thought of it so I, i'm i'm grateful that i was able to do that um so that was pretty cool for me but long and short of it um Inflation is going to be temporary, and it should not stop us from passing uh, social programs that that help people because we can afford it. And where the economy is going fast because it was just in a ditch, like that's what inflation is. It's basically the speed of the economy, and it's going, it's running hot right now because we're like making up for lost time, and it's not. There's no signs of it going out of control, or you know, 
like real wages dropping to some crazy level but that does so like that like that the noah smith thing the, the his post that i read it really pointed out that the problem that really the problem with inflation is when wages don't keep up and to me that that kind of dovetails with the whole thing about like the quote-unquote labor shortage but it's it's more that people won't take shitty jobs right now like for whatever reason like the pandemic like like they just have a different like they see the world differently or like people are doing okay now because of the checks and the unemployment and everything for whatever reason people are less inclined to take shitty jobs which i think is a good thing it is and yeah and like we have uh like the most pro-union president that we've we've had is what some people say and like um like he made the most the strongest like pro-union statement when it came to like amazon or whatever it was um like we that's in line with with, with you know needing stronger unions like it, it points that out like like unions are what give us the, the bargaining to do something like having a cost of living adjustment or having you know wages that go up with inflation and thus mitigating the negative effects so that's the other thing that this whole inflation thing points out is that we need you know stronger labor in this country which you know has been apparent for a while now yeah i just really want to emphasize that like we are in a position right now where so many jobs are available which is giving people a leverage leverage to be picky about the jobs that they want and that's not a bad thing and like if that is like part of a reason for inflation then like I'll eat it because people shouldn't be treated like shit at their jobs and that is what tends to happen is that there are a lot of times where you know there are more people available to work than there are actually jobs so employers can treat you like shit and that's not okay yeah and um yeah I mean even with that unemployment's going down so um so yeah and then so our last um topic that uh i know so jess you were you saw some news coverage of this issue where there's talk of um of the biden administration compensating families that were separated at the border under the um the zero tolerance policy of the trump administration it's a little brief uh like brief history on that um it actually they started messing around with separating families just in el paso in 2017 and then by april of 2018 um officials in the i guess it was probably like dhs um decided to install this uh zero tolerance policy where no matter what, if you're crossing the border, it's illegal and you're separated from your family. You know, the, kid, the kids are separated from their parents. And obviously there was, a, you know, we all remember there was a huge outcry, which eventually led to uh, President Trump having an Oval Office ceremony to mark the signing of an executive order that was sold to the public as ending the policy. Days later, a federal court ordered them to stop separating families and to reunify uh, thousands of children with their parents is like over 5,000. And even after that, um, more than a thousand additional families were separated. Yeah, I just, 
I saw this, I don't remember what I was, I was listening to something or I was watching something. I was listening to something. I was in the car. I was listening to Michael Smirconish bitch about the fact that like we were going to pay people for like effectively losing their children. And he is a very, like, he's an independent and that's like his claim to fame. And like, he doesn't take sides. And he was talking about how he like hadn't made a decision about if this was like the right thing to do or not. And I really just want to say that like, we need to stop taking people's kids from them. Like that's really the answer to this problem. Like, yes, we absolutely have to do something for the people who we stole their children and then lost their children. But there's precedent for paying people whose civil rights are violated. But like, (laughs) as you know, as a person whose mother was asked when she went to go get her tube side at 26, like, what if your husband takes the kids out one day, gets into a car accident and they all die. And my mom's like, well, you can't replace children. What are you talking about? Like, how is that a question you would ask someone who has three kids and wants their tubes died? Like she didn't want any more children. Um, you, you can't replace children. Like you cannot replace children with other children and you can't replace children with money. Like stop taking people's kids away from them. And if you are, for some actual legitimate reason, like the kid's life is in danger, like the parent beat the crap out of them. And like, you actually need to take the kids so that they don't die. Don't lose the kid. <laughs> so what are, what are ways in which um, like we're still, cause obviously that, you know, the, the border policy ended, um, you know, in 2018, but how, what are some of the ways that, that, that families are separated still? I mean, you know, obviously children can be separated at the border. Like the policy of automatically separating children is gone, but that doesn't mean that children aren't being separated. Um, But it's, it's, you know, it's beyond even just the border. I mean, just foster care in this country, you know, targets immigrants, it targets, you know, people of lower socioeconomic groups. But even when you're targeting people of lower socioeconomic groups, you're targeting black and brown people, you're targeting Asian people, you're targeting Indian children or native children, like you are targeting people who are not white. Like, so we just continue to do this over and over again. And as a person who literally served like as a caseworker in foster care, I can tell you that the entire time I worked there, I worked with one family who was white, who had their children removed. And I know of one other family who was white, who had their children removed. I was there for three months and three years. Most of the time that I was there, there were three therapeutic supervisors with four workers and two regular foster care workers with anywhere between like nine and 10 workers. And like everybody had a ridiculous caseload. And like, these were the only people, like two cases in the whole time I was there that I knew of that were white children. Um, Like we are still separating kids from their parents at like a ridiculous rate, especially in certain areas. And like, we just have to, you cannot replace someone's children. It's not a thing that it can happen. You cannot replace a human being. So yes, like we need to do something for these families that the children we lost, but like, it doesn't matter how much money we give them. Like if we can't give them their children back, it doesn't matter. And really, if you look at like the kids we were taking away, the the stories that I saw, these were not teenagers. Like 
I'm not saying take teenagers away from parents, but you can explain to a teenager what's going on. They can have a basic understanding of like what is going on. You know, they were removing children who you couldn't explain it to them. They didn't know what the hell was going on. And they're like, even though they can't verbalize it, they're blaming their parents for the separation. Like you're not just removing kids, even the kids that you gave back, like you ruined their relationship with their parents for a long time. Like that's trauma. That's not going to go away whether it's at the border or whether it's in foster care. Yeah. And I mean, the, yeah, I mean, the money obviously will not resolve the trauma, um, but I still think they should get the money. No, hundred percent. I'm not saying don't give it to them, but like at the end of the day, fundamentally, it's really, really not going to actually do anything. And like, we just, have to learn like to stop doing this shit like I'm sorry but people do not walk through Mexico or Canada to get to this country because where they're leaving is like a fantastic place with like a wealth of opportunities most of the time the place is a mess because of our crappy international policies like we cause these problems and then complain when people try to come here yeah. Yeah, and uh, that fixing that is uh, one of the one of the areas that uh, that Vice President Harris was was given to to take leadership on the uh, the something triangle. What is it? What is it called? No, I mean they can name it whatever they want. It's still ridiculous. <laughs> so she yeah she got. Uh, she got that she got voting rights which uh... I mean it's like a shit area to get dumped on you I'm not gonna lie because look it's more oh, Northern Triangle just... El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras yeah it's more than just one thing like it's more than people just attempting to cross the border like a lot of people are attempting to cross the border because of what we've done to those countries because of the lack of opportunity because of the gangs that we've encouraged to thrive because we still make money off the drug war too like it's a lot more than just like a simple problem of people trying to immigrate here and it's a system that is just so broken at this point that the last time we in any way really, really tried to deal with it was when Reagan granted amnesty to the 11 million people that were living here without necessary paperwork and did absolutely nothing to actually fix the broken system that caused the problem in the first place. Like nobody should go to jail or get deported who's living here. Like it's ridiculous unless you were like actually a criminal, unless you were like actually a murderer, like you don't deserve to be treated like shit because you happen to live here and like don't have a birth certificate that says you were born here. But like, we can't keep going in this cycle. Like people are going to want to come here. People want to immigrate here. Give people the paperwork, stop turning it in to uh you have to have a family member to do this and like you have to have a family member that can sponsor you or you have to be like ridiculously educated in order to actually get into you know a place that's going to be willing to sponsor you as like your workplace sponsoring you like 
figure out a way. It's not that difficult. We have so many available options. Like we still have, you know, the dream act that hasn't been passed. Like there are people living in this country who don't ever remember living anywhere else who like maybe hopefully got DACA, but like, that's not even that big of a help. Like you have to pay a ridiculous amount of money to renew your DACA every couple of years. And like, basically all you can do is work because you can't get federal financial aid. So you're allowed to get state financial aid, which doesn't give anybody enough money to actually go to college. Um, And you can't just go to trade school and you can't, like there's so many restrictions. I mean, you could, if you could pay for it, but trade school is really expensive for a lot of stuff. So like it, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous that like we've put like a couple of things in place to like slightly ease the burden for people. But at the end of the day, like we make it ridiculously difficult for people to come live in this country and go to school and work and do jobs that like, if you actually just deported everybody today who doesn't have the necessary up-to-date and paid for paperwork, like the economy would crash in a lot of states. Like we wouldn't be able to, we already have a work shortage. We already can't keep up. Like we already can't, you know, farm enough food for all the people in this country and like have to rely on other countries and trade deals and stuff like that. Like, let's be realistic. You can claim that people broke the law and you can be pissed that like they're living here without paperwork. But at the end of the day, you could be the most anti-immigration person in the world and you cannot live every day without the people who live in this country that way. Like get over it. People are people like you, again, you can't replace children. Like you can't replace people like enough with the hysterics and the bullshit and like move on and get something done. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's wild. Like the, this like half baked system that we have, it, it benefits corporations essentially because they benefit from the labor, but the, but, but the, the laborers don't have rights. No, not at all. And that's the other thing too, is like when we're talking about, you know, issues with workers being abused and treated unfairly, it's like the workers who you know, are the most abused and the most treated unfairly are the ones who can't speak up for themselves. And if you're living here without the necessary immigration paperwork, like, how are you going to speak up for yourself? Like all your, all your employer has to do is turn around and be like, I'm going to call immigration. Like, like it's the worst kind of hell to possibly be in as a worker. Like you shut up and do your job or you get deported. Yeah. Probably away from your family maybe back to a country you haven't been to in decades, maybe back to a country you've never lived in, like, you know, as like with memory, like (laughs) it's ridiculous. Like the whole argument is just so ridiculous. And the idea that we can just continue, like we just always have to have a group of people to other and to beat up on. And it makes people feel better about themselves. And like, I did it the right way, or I was born here. So I have a right to be here. It's like, no, that's not real. None of that is real. There was like there are a couple of uh, parallels to the whole student loan issue. It's like when you mentioned Reagan's amnesty without fixing the system, that's if we you know if we cancel student debt and then don't fix the system, then we're just gonna perpetuate and like there's you know 
generation or two, there's just going to be more people with crushing debt again. In a generation or two, in like a couple of years, (laughs) it's not going to take that long. Because remember, it's a generation of students a year. year, Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's taken how long to get to the, the place that we're in now, but college costs so much more money now that like, in a couple of years, there's just going to be a whole other group of people that are under crushing debt. Like as a person who holds student loans, like forgive them, like get rid of them. Like even if you gave me 50 grand, you're probably only giving me the interest that I've ever like accrued on my debt. Like forgive them, like get rid of them. But like, if you don't do that in tandem with also actually fixing the higher education system, like there's you know, there's a point in doing it because it's going to help a lot of people who currently hold student loans. But like it's not going to help anybody who, you know, isn't done with college yet or who plans on going in a couple of years. It just, you have to actually look at the system and say like, how did this happen? How are we going to fix this? And just uh, completely abolish for-profit colleges. That shouldn't be a thing that you're allowed to like register for and actually function. Like it's a good place to start and then deal with actually funding, you know, state schools so that it's not as expensive as it used to be or not as expensive as it currently is. It used to be cheaper. CUNY used to be completely free. I think that lasted into the 70s. I think it was the economic crisis in the 70s that finally got tuition attached to CUNY. Um, It could have been later than that. I could be wrong, but it used to be completely free. There used to be state schools where you would pay like 50 bucks. You know, my first year um, out of high school, I went to Suffolk Community College at the time the tuition for the semester cost me about $1,700, really cheap. You know, obviously it's a community college. It was, you know, years ago, but like looking at it, even then I was like, all right, this isn't that bad. You know, I know people are paying a fortune to go to private school. So like 1700 bucks doesn't seem that bad, but the only amount of money, the maximum amount of money you were allowed to take out on a at the time, what was called a Stafford loan, which is now the direct loan program, um, was $2,500. So my tuition for a semester was $1,700. And then I had to buy my books. And then I had to get myself there. And sometimes some of the classes would have extra, you know, like a fees attached to them or stuff that you had to buy for them, lab classes and stuff like that. Um, Gym classes, which I had to buy sneakers for because I don't wear sneakers and I still don't wear sneakers. Um, like stupid things like that. You know, I was basically like getting one semester's worth of, of school paid for every year. Um, you know, and I ended up having to take out private student loans to finish school because when I transferred to Stony Brook, the tuition was more expensive. I don't actually remember what the tuition was at Stony Brook at the time. Um, but it was more expensive and I like dug myself into a hole that I wouldn't have gotten out of if I didn't work from home for 16 months and spend money on literally nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's crazy, you know, it's crazy. And, and a lot of schools and a lot of graduate programs, you don't have enough money even on student loans to pay your tuition and you have to take out graduate plus loans and, you know, there's undergrad students whose parents are taking out parent plus loans and all these crazy ways to finance their kids' education. Like we have to fix this problem. A community college shouldn't cost that much money. And honestly, I haven't looked at it in in years and years and years. I have no idea what it costs to go to Suffolk now, but it's insane. Like it shouldn't, it should cost you like 50 bucks and like, like it should, you know, I, I do believe that like, it's okay to ask for some investment. Like 
I don't think it's a good idea for it to be like a hundred percent everything paid for, for you, because I think there's too many kids that would have their parents push them into school, even though they shouldn't be there or would have that, you know, would just feel pressured to do it because it's free. Well, so like a small investment, like a small, small buy-in of like, you know, but we also need to figure out like the trade school situation too, because we don't often include that in like university speak. We talk about college yeah. and like, there are a lot of people that shouldn't be in college. They should be in trade school. They should be doing other things, things that they actually truly enjoy doing or just don't mind doing is fine too. But like, not everybody is supposed to go to college and that's okay. And we need to like make space for that conversation as well, because you know, we, we need electricians, we need carpenters, we need plumbers. Like these are all good and, and usually decent paying jobs that people need to do. And the other um, parallel was just the process being needlessly complicated hmm. um, for immigration remind me of the needlessly complicated process of getting uh, student loans forgiven through the like uh, public interest job thing where you have to work 10 years and then do all this complicated shit even the for even the the opening up of the forgiveness that like happened in the beginning of october is needlessly complicated under there they they drastically reduce the requirements to the point where like the one hard and fast requirement you can't get out of is that you had to have been working for a public agency or a nonprofit organization yeah. um that is not like that is in place. You have to have been doing that. You cannot be working in like finance or big business or, you know, any of that sort of stuff. Like it has to be a public or a nonprofit job. Um, but they're still, you know, it just these ridiculous requirements of like, we're going to allow you to look back in a way that like you couldn't before you always had to pre-approve everything. You had to be on the correct payment plan. You had to do like jump through all these hurdles that they're temporarily removing but if you still have what I was talking about before, those Stafford loans that were under the, I think it was FFELP loans, um, if you have them instead of the direct loans, they're requiring you to re to consolidate them into a direct loan, which is very simple. The direct loan is a federal student loan that doesn't actually check your credit. You know, you just, you can very easily consolidate into it. But like, why are you making people go through that process? It takes between 30 and 45 days to consolidate the loan. So like there are people that I told about the day that the changes came out that just had their loans consolidated last week, like the whole process done. And like, it's insane to me that like you even have to do that because there's also implications for your credit report. Like, yes, they don't check your credit. They, they're not gonna actually check your credit to take out the loan, but they are adding a new loan to your credit report and paying off an old loan that they're now closing out that had a history that's gonna be removed from your average you know, number of years that like could potentially like drop your credit score a couple of points. So like they're still making you go through unnecessarily hurdles just to get them forgiven when it was supposed to be like an easy fix. And like, it really wasn't, that easy. It's like, I joke about it, but it's not really a joke. Like you need almost a master's degree in finance just to even begin to figure out how to do this on a regular day. Yeah. That reminds me of, uh, of, uh, Jason Kander, who's a, a veteran, but is also, he was a lawyer, 
by by training um he's like a army intelligence officer and when he had when he signed up for va benefits like he was having trouble navigating that yeah. system um and then had to get help from the organization that he's now the president of that uh like builds these like tiny home uh communities in different places but yeah, yeah things are just needlessly complicated all over the place and this i mean to be honest with you it just brings us back to like every time we means test something this being a problem like every time yeah it's insane because like you know so many elected officials are, are walking around you know so many elected officials are making the argument that if you forgive you know everybody's student loans it's going, you know, it's it's really a racial justice issue. And it is, I mean, it is, but like, there's also people running around being like, well, I don't want to forgive the loans of like, you know, rich kids who went to Harvard. Like, I don't either, but like if a couple of thousand rich kids who went to Harvard and like actually had to pay for it, you know, decide it, like get their student loans forgiven and everybody else does too. I don't really care that much. Like, I, I'm sorry, I don't really care that much. And I'm really sorry to all the kids who like, made decisions at 17 to go to cheaper colleges so they weren't going to be in debt and like now everybody's loans are going to be forgiven they didn't know that was going to happen but at the end of the day like i hope you had a great college experience like now you don't have to pay anymore like like enough with the like anecdotal story is about like people who like made poor choices or like people who's you know have a lot of money now like what i don't care just forgive the free yeah. loans we haven't been paying them for two years the majority of people haven't been paying them for two years and almost two years now and nothing has happened no interest has been accruing for two years and like the economy didn't crash and it definitely didn't tank because of that. It tanked because everyone was staying home and businesses were closed. Like we've been doing okay. Like there's no reason why in, you know, three months, my sister's going to start accruing $400 a month in interest on her student loans. And me even being in school because I have unsubsidized loans is going to start accruing $342 and seven cents a month. Like it's ridiculous. Yeah. And yeah, I just... I just wish that like when it comes to means testing, people would realize that the, the, you know, the cases in which, you know, a rich kid gets his student loans forgiven or like whatever the, the cases where like somebody gets a benefit that like, doesn't need a benefit, like means testing mean makes it. So what that make like it puts such a burden that, there are so many more people in, in the instance of means testing that need a benefit that don't get it. It's so yeah. like, it just, it's outweighed so much, you know, yeah. the, the, yeah, no, it is outweighed so much by the people who actually need it getting it that we shouldn't even be like factoring in that that's going to happen. It's going to happen. I am over it and we need to move past it. <laughs> yeah. We need to move past means testing. We need to, need to abolish the filibuster so we can fix voting rights and the immigration system and gun control and countless other things and we need to get rid of means testing yeah and we need to we need to forgive everyone's student loans coupled with an actual reform of the the higher education system including trade schools and we need to grant amnesty and and expunge the records of everyone who is living here right now without the necessary immigration paperwork and also fix the immigration system yep and uh and we could go on but we will not because uh this has been a very now long podcast so yeah. it's time to end it um although you know 
it, it's good because, you know, if you need to break this up into two parts or something, you know, like listen to the rest of it on Black Friday. Although I guess this is the end of the podcast. So it's, it's over. It's a moot point at this point. But I say that to say we won't be having a Thanksgiving episode. So we will not be seeing you next week. We will see you in two weeks. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, and thank you, as always, to Iridian Falcone for uh, inspiring the podcast and for our logo. And to my friend Vinny Alfano of Anonymous Hair Salon in Soho for the theme song. Um, please follow us at SAB underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, we'll see you in two weeks. 